Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to the third installment of the 2023 Disability Law Series on Civil Rights and Individuals with Developmental Disabilities. I'm Leslie Stein, Director of the Government Law Center and home of the Institute on Aging and Disability Law. This is the third program in this exciting series of five programs, which as you might expect, has been organized by a number of individuals. Special thanks to the members of the Aging and Disability Law Committee members, Lawrence Faulkner, Paul Keatsman, and Sheila Shea, led by our own Professor Rosemary Bailey. Also many thanks for the Government Law Center staff members who have handled the arrangements for this program. The topic of today's program is consent of adults in adoption and marriage decisions. The other programs in the series will be held on March 30th and April 13th, both at 1 o'clock p.m., and will address challenges in guardianship for people with developmental disabilities and potential statutory reforms for the protection of civil rights of people with developmental disabilities. You will hope, we hope you will join us for as many of those programs as possible. Before I introduce the moderator of today's program, I would like to thank the Albany Law School Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, the co-sponsor of today's program. I'd like to recognize Jermaine Cruz, Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, and Bria Barnes, Assistant Director for Diversity and Inclusion Initiatives, for attending today's program during a very busy diversity week here at Albany Law School. I will now ask Owen Collier, Coordinator of Student Programs, to say a few words on behalf of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Office. Owen. Thank you. Hello. I'm so excited to be here on the fourth day of the second annual Diversity Week at Albany Law School. Uh, we've had so many wonderful programs so far. We're looking forward to the program today. And I want to quickly remind everybody that we still have one more day with two events coming up, Embracing Equity in the Courtroom tomorrow in the DAMC and a service opportunity tomorrow, both starting at 9 a.m. We are thrilled to be here in collaboration with the Government Law Center, um, who continues to develop incredible events that highlight DEI topics and efforts outside of the classroom. Um, while our office is a hub for this work, it's with participation and collaboration from every other organization and party on this campus that we move in the right direction. So thank you so much and I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Owen. And now on to the program. We are fortunate to have as the moderator of today's panel, Simeon Goldman, who has worked in many capacities to enforce the community integration, housing, employment, and other civil rights of people with disabilities since 1988. He's currently the general counsel to the Independent Living Center of the Hudson Valley. He previously served as the supervising attorney at Disability Rights New York and as director of advocacy at the Capital District Center for Independence. Mr. Goldman has also taught seminars at Albany Law School and lectured for numerous organizations on topics including the civil rights of people with disabilities and on mental disability law. He is the co-editor of the New York State Bar Association's three-volume treatise on disability law and practice. Mr. Goldman will introduce our exceptional group of panelists. Thank, thank you very much, Leslie. And it's an honor to be here uh, and to be with all of you. And I understand there are many of you uh, on the seminar. And uh, that's, just, uh, that, that, that's just fantastic. So uh, a couple of thoughts before I uh, in, introduce our panelists, who are two of whom I've known for 30 years 
and one of whom I know by reputation and uh, is spectacular. But, um, you know, we're, we're talking here about marriage and we're talking about adoption and what do they have in common? And initially the two seemed somewhat, no pun intended, divorced from one another. But the fact of the matter is the only way you can join a family other than by blood is either by, through marriage or through adoption. So it goes to the importance of family for all of us, including for people with, for people with disabilities. Starting with marriage, you're going to hear, I, I'm sure from Sheila and perhaps uh, others about Obergefell. And I think, you know, what Judge Kennedy said in that decision, which uh, memorialized the, the right for people who are gay to get married is that no union is more profound than marriage. It embodies the highest ideals of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. Now, th those, those are very powerful aspirational words. Now, I'd like to contrast that with some words from one of New York's philosopher kings and former governors, uh, Andrew Cuomo, and this was just in the Times Union two days ago. He said, marriage always ends in divorce, you lose money and your sex drive goes down. There's probably some truth and a lot of space in between both of those quotes. And I, mean, I, I mentioned them because one of the things I've seen, and I know many of us have seen in the treatment of people with disabilities over the decades is that People with disabilities, and especially people with intellectual disabilities, are held to a higher standard than the rest of the world. So when we're looking at consent to get married or you know, consent for adoption, and of course you're going to hear about a court case in which there, there was no consent for adoption, I think it's really important to keep that in mind. I, for years I heard about people disabilities making decisions that were not appropriate, when all people were saying is you're making a decision that's not in your best interest. And if you're making a decision that's not in your best interest, and if that's a standard for denying you the right to get married or to do any number of things, then we would pretty much eliminate about 80% of young adults from having the ability to make decisions for themselves, certainly important life-changing life decisions. But we have fortunately, we, we have moved over the years through the Americans with Disabilities Act from a world and a paradigm in which we looked as people with disabilities as a bunch of medical conditions and people to be protected who should receive charity to being fully fledged human beings with human rights and the ability to enjoy, and many would argue the right to enjoy, the right to marriage and to sexuality and to be a part of the family. And you're going to be hearing about the state of the art in that from our from our panelists. So let me let me introduce our panelists. I'm going to start with Natalie Chin. Uh, Natalie is the co-director of the Disability and Aging Justice Clinic, and she's an associate professor of law at the City of University of New York. Prior to that, she uh, was faculty director um, of the Disability and Civil Rights Clinic at Brooklyn Law School, which uh, she created and she founded. She has uh, worked as a public interest attorney for, for Lambda and uh, has advocated for equal rights for the LGBT people and people living with HIV. 
And Natalie has brought her passion uh, for this work to her work, to her scholastic work, and has written extensively and has, has been a, a very, very forceful advocate. I've just gotten to know her through this, but by reputation, uh, I've heard nothing but wonderful things about her, and I think she, ha she, she will have very important things to share with us. Uh, next, Sheila Shea. You'll notice Sheila's biography is probably three or four sentences long in your papers, but that's just like Sheila. Uh, it's been one of the true privileges of my career to work with uh, someone like Sheila, who is so dedicated, unbelievably selfless, and unbelievably kind, and a absolute legal mind to be reckoned with. And uh, it's an honor to have Sheila as a colleague and as a friend. Um, Ed Wilsensky, Ed and I had known each, have also known each other for almost 30 years. Uh, Ed is the co-owner and an attorney at Wilsensky and Pleat. Uh, he practices in the areas of special needs planning, litigation, settlement consulting, trust and estate administration, elder law, and long-term care planning. Uh, but as Ed is going to share with you, uh, you know, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, finance and benefits planning for persons with disabilities. But uh, his work is both informed and I think very much enriched by his personal experience with a family member who has a disability. And he's going to be sharing uh, some of that with you. So without further ado, uh, we are going to get started. So I believe Natalie, you will be leading the charge. Yeah, I think actually Sheila is gonna get us started with the, the facts and a little bit of the background oh, uh, of the case, and then I'll, I'll follow. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, good afternoon, everyone. So I'm I'm going to start our discussion today. We're we're framing uh, the focus right now on adoption, and um, we are looking at a, a case, a particular case that um, is uh, reported as matter of Marion or or Marion T. The case originated in Otsego County, in surrogates court. It was appealed to the appellate division third department. And then it was heard by the New York State Court of Appeals. I will confide to all of you my, my personal feeling, and I had shared this with Professor Chin earlier, that um, I, I always thought that Marion's case was one of the most compelling cases I've ever worked at at NHLS. And we'll discuss the, the genesis of the case and its progression through the trial court and appellate review. But I, I remain surprised that the case hasn't generated that much academic interest um, and certainly no apparent desire by the legislature to examine this issue of, of the adoption of adults with uh, intellectual disabilities. I, I went on Westlaw before the uh, presentation today and I, I, Marion has not been cited by other cases as precedent. Um, it's mentioned in secondary sources only. Uh, the Family Law Quarterly, which is published by the American Bar Association, and uh, said in 2019 that they mentioned the case. They said it was an unusual case. <laughs> That's how they characterized it. Um, but you know, it's to me, it's much, much deeper than that. It's it's about an individual. It's about um, really compelling issues uh, regarding family and social relationships. All everything that Sim captured in his, his in his introduction. Um, so I'm really grateful for this forum, and I'm so grateful that uh, in the interest that the topic has, has generated. So um, with that said, um, I'm, I'm the director of a state agency, the Mental Hygiene Legal Service, and um, 
our agency was appointed as a counsel in this case when the adoption petition was filed. There, there is no right to counsel that's in, in embodied in the domestic relations law in this particular context. But um, Marion lived in a uh, what's uh, called a family care home, which is a facility that's licensed by the Office for People with Developmental Disabilities. The Mental Hygiene Legal Service has a nexus to facilities. So when the petition was filed, I believe the surrogate judge you know, naturally reached out to us to see if we would accept an assignment uh, because we appear frequently in guardianship cases and other, and other matters before the surrogate. So that that's how we became, we, I say we, Mental Hygiene Legal Service, that's how our agency became involved in the case. Uh, to us, the case stood on a relatively simple principle, and um, but with some very profound implications. So from our perspective, uh, the question, the legal question was whether a, a, a resident of a family care home, a, a person with an intellectual disability, 64 years of age at the time the proceeding was commenced, whether she could provide in, informed consent to being adopted. And, and, it, and if she could, is the would the adoption be in, in her best interest? So let's step back a little bit and just provide some foundation for this discussion. So Article 7 of the Domestic Relations Law creates the legal status of adoption and closely regulates how that status may be established. And Article 7 is divided into four titles. Title I contains the statutes applicable to all adoption matters. That's relevant here. Um, Title II isn't relevant, really regulates op adoptions from authorized agencies. Title III governs private placement adoptions, so they weren't implicated in this case. Title IV describes the effect and consequences of adoption, and those certainly were implicated here. And I think Professor Chin is will follow me with a more robust discussion about the consequences of the adoption for a person with developmental disabilities. So um, just again, to frame some issues, um, there are certain definitions in the domestic relation law, um, defining parent and child or the adoptee and the concept of the child in the domestic relations law would include an adult who might be subject to adoption. Family court and surrogates court are the two courts that explicitly have jurisdiction over adoption matters. Of course, Supreme Court is a court of general jurisdiction, could exercise jurisdiction, but rarely does. So these, these types of cases are typically seen in uh, family court or surrogates court. In our particular case, uh, we were in um, surrogates court um, in Otsego County over in uh, Cooperstown. To isolate the precise statute at issue, it was Domestic Relations Law Section 111. And that statute provides, subject to the limitations set forth in the statute, consent to adoption shall be required as follows. Of the adoptive child, if over 14 years of age, unless the judge or surrogate in his discretion dispenses with such consent. So that's the statute, very few, um, it's short and concise. That's precise statute that we were addressing. 
So let's look at the facts a little bit more deeply. So the petitioners in this matter who were seeking to adopt, they were the family care providers. Um, their family care home was operated under the auspices of the Office for People with Dis Developmental Disabilities or o OPWDD. They commenced their proceeding in surrogate's court, as I said. Um, the respondent, Marion, uh, was a resident of their home. She lived there with two other people with developmental disabilities, two other women. Marion was said to have a profound intellectual disability. Uh, intelligence testing would have placed her, um, she'd achieved a, in the range of 40 to 45 on various intelligence tests that she'd taken. Um, she was nonverbal, uh, very expressive though, and you know, lovely, quite charming, and um, could demonstrate her wishes her, you know, day to day, had good relations with the people that she lived with, and a very nice uh, demeanor. Um, enjoyed her life um, living in the family care home for almost 12 years when we met her. She had lived in other certified settings. Um, for a, for a very long time. So as I said, the proceeding was commenced when she was 64, but even I, I believe she had entered this OPWDD system of care um, as, a, as a young, as young in, in, her, in her childhood. Um, and I, I talked to you briefly about the family care home. It's again, it's licensed if you're, if you're interested, there's a whole regulatory scheme governing the family care home, but it's, and it's codified at uh, part 687 of the OPWDD regulations. I mentioned previously that um, the statute doesn't require the appointment of counsel, but MHLS was appointed. And um, from our perspective, as we looked at this case initially, the, the remedy of the adoption didn't it just, didn't seem to fit to us as counsel as we began to investigate both the circumstances of Marion and the legal standards. Our conclusion as legal counsel was that Marion wasn't able to consent and thus imposing an adoption upon her seemed an intrusion into her personhood and to her aut autonomy. I mean, that's where we started. I, I think the courts, framed the issue differently and, that, and Professor Chin, I think we'll talk about this, but I think from the perspective of the courts, as we litigated this case, the question was more, why should Marion be precluded from having the benefit of an adoption because she couldn't consent? So, I mean, I think that those, it was juxtaposed that way, but from, from our perspective, we, we, were convinced that the statute didn't apply because she couldn't consent. And um, her capacity was evaluated uh, by two psychologists, um, one identified by our agency and um, the, the petitioners had identified a psychologist. Ultimately, a guardian ad litem was appointed for Marion uh, the, at the petitioner's request. I believe the petitioners thought that our agency wasn't representing Marion properly, and they felt that she should have a guardian ad litem who would take more of a more of a best interests approach. So a guardian ad litem was was appointed, um, and then we went through three levels of judicial review, as I as I said, and it's interesting um, as we discuss the case. At every level, the court determined that the petition should be granted but different for different reasons. So at the trial level, 
the judge determined that consent really was required. The judge never overtly said that the court would dispense with the consent, but the court reached the conclusion that the guardian ad litem by implication or impliedly could consent to the adoption. Even though the guardian ad litem in rendering his report said he, the guardian ad litem did not feel that he had that um, a capacity that was in the guardian ad litem's view that wasn't within the guardian ad litem's authority. The appellate division affirmed and granted the adoption petition, but for different reasons. The appellate division said overtly, and they, they, they place this in a footnote, but said overtly that the surrogate's court erred in holding that the guardian ad litem possessed the authority to consent to the adoption. So from the, the point, of, point of view of the appellate division, the guardian ad litem could not consent. And then the appellate division determined that because in the, in the court's view, adoption was in the respondent's best interests and she was unable to consent, her consent was unnecessary and thus could be dispensed with. So um, the, and I think Professor Chin is going to, to talk about the best interest standard. And I think if you had a chance to read the amicus brief that was included in the materials, the professor does a wonderful job um, explaining this. So I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that, but. I, I wanted to just explain that um, the, the, the decision in the appellate division was unanimous. So um, it was, we, we, we were able to um, secure um, court of appeals review upon a, upon a motion. And um, so obviously the court of appeals thought this was a novel question, uh, one of public importance. And then when we were um, in the Court of Appeals, uh, really our focus again, we didn't frame the issues from a constitutional perspective, it was more statutory construction and this issue about consent and whether consent could be dispensed with properly. So if I may, I'll leave it there, Professor, if you wanted to continue, is this a, a good time to, to break here? You're muted. You're mute. Hi, everybody. I'm Professor Chin. It's so great to be here. Um, thank you for that background. Um, one thing I was going to do is I was going to actually start um, with a short video uh, just to kind of, this is not about Marion, but it's about the idea of adoption of a disabled adult. So I'm going to quickly share my screen. Okay. And can everybody see my screen? Is it clear? And then yes. I have, and I have uh, a question I'd like you to consider. And and Shell, if you wouldn't mind opening the, the Zoom um, to folks, if they can, when you watch this video, so I, I think CLEs, you know, it's easy to be so detached from the humanity of the law. And we don't have Marion here before us, of course. So I thought that showing this video might allow us to sort of look at the humanity of this issue and and critique it as we talk about these, these deep and important issues. So, you know, as you watch this very short three minute video, what I'm gonna ask the audience to do is, you know, type whatever you like, you know, what do we learn about this young woman, this 23 year old woman, Tina, who is being adopted? And then if you want to go even further in the Zoom chat, share any other sort of immediate thoughts you have while watching this video. All right, so let me just show the video. One second. 
I have opened the Zoom chat so that people can share their reflections about the video. Okay. All right, here we go. This is the video. Can everybody see the video clearly? Yes. All right. Talks with the McGovern family one week after they adopted 23-year-old Tina. It wasn't until after Brittany and Brandon McGovern found out they weren't able to have biological children that their future became crystal clear. For a period of time, we were just like, okay, it'll be the two of us. Brittany became Tina's group home manager in 2012 at Quality Life Concepts in Great Falls and eventually became Tina's advocate. Immediately when Tina started spending time with our family, she fit our family so well. We're like, this is, this is what's supposed to happen. We're not supposed to have biologically our own kids. We're supposed to have Tina. The McGoverns say Tina, who is disabled, became their daughter over the next two years, growing closer to family and friends. The, the more time goes on, the closer we get, huh? Mm -hmm. And for the past two years, Tina's been very involved in our family. You know, family mm -hmm. vacations, you know, Colorado trips. Mm -hmm. I um, yeah, and um, mm -hmm. every holiday, every birthday, and we just fit like a family. The family decided to make Tina's transition official with adoption gave her the option, you know, we will either be Brittany and Brandon or we will be mom and dad and it was immediate, your mommy and daddy. Eventually it was really just logistics and paperwork just to get it to pass through because whether they would have accepted it in the state or not, it wouldn't have really changed much. But the couple says the process leading up to adoption day was more complicated than they first thought. Well, we used we the JAG on base, he did what he could, we used military one we source. We called and talked to seven or eight um, they say attorneys could not find any cases involving the adoption of an adult with a disability in Cascade County. The lack of cases turned out to be statewide. Brandon says they found very few resources for Tina's adoption. Throughout the gamut of Montana that I've spoke to on the phone or anything has told me that this is such a rarity between not only an adult adoption, but somebody that's not a family member, and then on top of it with a disability and keeping her as her own guardian on top of it. It was just like, we just kept stacking, but it never happened. Mm -hmm. After finding the right attorney, the family was able to move along with the adoption process. Surrounded by family and friends, Tina Lee officially became part of the McGovern family. Mm -hmm. Pretty exciting. Yeah. What was the best part? Don't cry, Lonnie. That was the best part. <laughs> Brandon and Brittany say after completing the process, they now hope those looking to adopt an adult with a disability in the future won't feel alone. Because now it, they can no longer say that's what right. happened before. We just did it. And so, you know, if somebody else wants to adopt somebody with a disability, or even just an adult, um, it now should be easy. Do we make a difference for you, honey? Mm -hmm. Becoming mom and dad, make mm -hmm. you happy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kitty. And you got your kitty and your puppies, huh? <laughs> This is possible. This is something that should happen. I mean, how many children and how many adults with disabilities in our nation do we have? Not just that, but maybe just Montana, uh, that are viable candidates for adoption and that should be adopted. So, reporting in Vaughn, Keely Van Middendorp. Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. So. I came across this video. Let me just see if anybody put stuff in the chat here. Well, they, um, they did. <laughs> yeah, thanks for a few. I can't, you know, when when I when Sheila asked me to the clinic to write an amicus brief on this case, I was like, yeah, this is a really novel and important issue to think that you could dispense with consent for an adult and adoption. It just blew my mind. But when I spoke to my colleagues about this, they're like, what's the problem? 
Like that was, I mean, colleagues I've been working in disability rights for years. Um, and I think the reason why I showed this video, and I think this really relates to some of the comments is that when we think about adoption of disability, we have to also think about the systems in place that made this case happen and made the holding happen that dispense with the consent of an adult with an intellectual disability. So in this video, my question was, what do we learn about Tina? And this goes to, you know, what did we learn about Marion through the appellate division um, um, case and then through the court of appeals case, whose voice was really centered? So I'm just looking at the chat real quick. There's very little actually on Tina. It's more about the parents. Initially, the conversation seems to be framed about Tina's contribution to the family as opposed to what the family could offer Tina. It seems Tina has little agency in making any decisions and we only rely, really learn that she likes the kitty. Um, it's troubling that they don't really interview really Tina. Uh, they focus more on the adoptive parents uh, and the list goes on. How are adults already treated in the legal system? And so I think this is extremely important because um, this is essentially what happened in the Marion T case, right? Who, whose voice was centered? And so when Sheila asked us to write an amicus brief, we really thought about you know, what contribution could we make to the court? Um, Sheila mentioned the best interest standard. Throughout this case, what we noticed was this lack of, again, centering Marion and viewing her as the adult that she is and what that means in terms of self-determination, dignity, and personhood. And what the court did uh, you know, in dispensing with Marion's consent is they relied on domestic relations law that is applied to um, young people and adoption. And they also used cases uh, that uh, were specifically focused on youth and adoption. And we highlight that in our brief for the reason of being that we aren't you know, dealing with somebody who is under 18, who's a child. But that best interest standard was really came from family law and came from looking at the best interest in youth adoption cases. And there didn't seem to be any red flags as to that being a problem throughout, you know, um, the appellate division. And, and if I don't know if folks went back and read, but the appellate division really centers the parents who are adopting. Talk about how emotional they get and when they started talking about Marianne and that they can give her a good life. And so one thing that we wanted to do and, and bring to the attention of the court, and this is what you know the clinic has done in the past, is really educate the court on the self-determination, dignity of personhood of adults with intellectual disabilities, particularly when we're dealing with a case around adoption of an adult. So one thing we did was we brought up the UN Commission for the Rights of People with Disabilities, talked about that this is a comprehensive international treaty um, legal capacity for people with disabilities on an equal basis and in all aspects of life that, you know, 17 cases, Judge Glenn in particular, have cited to the CRPD, right, in guardianship cases to say that we have to recognize the legal capacity and the self-determination of people with disabilities, and we have to recognize the dignity and autonomy. And so one thing we really wanted to do was, you know, let the court know, you know, this is has been dealt with before in other in other um, capacities. Seventeen Day Guardianship has looked at personhood, self determination. Can we sort of get out of this um, lane of looking at Marion as a child and think of it in the broader context of self determination? How New York courts have looked at international human rights law and things like that. So that's one thing, and I think it. I'll talk about Judge Rivera's dissent, but she did cite 
to, to UNCRPD, the Commission for the Rights of People with Disabilities, which I, you know, I hope that we were able to influence her uh, in when she wrote the dissent. Um, and so my roadmap here is just to, to highlight, you know, how the clinic approached what issues we wanted to really highlight. Because I actually do feel that Judge Rivera's dissent um, did a really great job in highlighting all the aspects that were really missing in terms of the importance of this case, um, the personhood, talking about the, some of the constitutional issues. Um, a second thing we brought up was confronting the infantilization of Marion. And I, and I think this is also something we should all think about in our practice of disability rights law and um, working with clients who have diminished capacity, cognitive limitations, intellectual disability, developmental disabilities, is that there is still, you know, as we saw in this video, this general um, idea of this perpetual child. Uh, and if you think about the cultural norms, if you think about the way the laws are written, this infantilization then goes into the ultimate analysis that the court gives to persons with intellectual disabilities in this case. Um, in our brief, for example, we let the court know that um, you know, folks who are elderly and also have cognitive disabilities or intellectual disability, substitute decision-making is used more often. There's this automatic um, idea that this older person who also has an intellectual disability is gonna be viewed as a child under the law. And we wanted to, to kind of draw to the court's attention, perhaps some of these biases are coming into play. Um, and, and that was one reason why we brought that up. And um, again, you know, one thing we also wanted to, to, to talk about is this conflation, and this was brought up in the chat, conflating Marion's interest and her desire to be adopted with her, the respondents, or the, the adoptive parents, her caretakers, like their emotions. If you look at the brief, the, the, you read the arguments and you read um, the cases, you really don't get a sense of who Marion is. There is no sense. I mean, if you look, like if you go back and nobody's gonna do this, but you look at the transcript uh, in the deposition, you know, the family talks about she's receiving OPWDD services. She has a whole team of people who help her make decisions, right? So there's a team of people, but we don't know that. Right when we were talking about her capacity, we saw these expert opinions, but this whole team of support for her to make decisions, it really wasn't incorporated um, and it wasn't something that we learned about in the actual case. And I think that goes to the fact of this false sense of um, this independence that she had to um, speak to the experts in such a way to articulate that she want, you know, she consented to be adopted. And then they took, sort of stripped this from her and thought of her more as a child and did away with the idea of consent altogether. And so we really wanted to highlight this infantilization. Um, the third thing, and I won't go into too much detail, is this was just kind of throwing, you know, arguments out there, like what's gonna stick? Uh, but one thing I wanna highlight, and I'm gonna fast forward to a different slide is, you know, looking at the constitutional right to family, the constitutional right to choose who your family was, who your family is, is something Judge Rivera did discuss and one thing I wanna really highlight is, you know, this idea of going back to, is the expert opinion and then the idea of support decision-making model. We talked about this in the frame of the constitutional right to family. And, you know, I, this just came to my mind as I was rereading everything. And I went back to the expert opinions. 
Um, and so this is an expert opinion, and this was MHLS's expert. I just highlighted some language. Um, so the expert said, you know, given Marion's deficits, Marion was nonverbal, she's unable to respond to questions. Given her degree of intellectual disability, she has no capacity to understand the concept of adoption. She's unable to make an informed choice regarding the specifics of becoming adopted. Um, and so if you read the expert opinion, it really, and I think, um, you know, the Council for the Adoptive Parents really held on to the fact that the expert is seeming to say that if you're nonverbal, that you can't articulate in any kind of way how you're feeling. And so I do, I just want to draw out, you know, when we think about experts in the context of capacity in our clients to think about how you know, we are um, representing our clients. So I actually thought this was rather problematic. I think ultimately it did say that Miriam did not have the informed, didn't have the capacity to make an informed decision, but I think that there could have been other strategies to establish that in a different way. And then we go to the other expert who is saying, you know, capacity to consent to adoption isn't reliant on cognitive functioning. The essence of giving consent to adoption is whether she shows the consummate degree of trust in learning Greg. And I think we all can see the problem with this expert assessment. Could you imagine in any other area of law, right, where consent would be dispensed with by looking at the emotion only? And that's what this expert is saying. And that really goes back to the idea of infantilization. So the reason why, you know, so here the court looking at the best interest standard, they really focused quite problematically on the idea that, you know, because she is disabled, that doesn't mean she can't have these deep and emotional family feelings, right? So that's the appellate division, or there's no basis to conclude that, you know, she can't have this loving relationship and, you know, benefit, but nobody said this, right? This, this is a red herring. Nobody said that because of her intellectual disability, she can't experience love and commitment and attachment. And that I believe is why the analysis went in a completely different direction as Sheila said. The idea was our, the paternalistic idea of adoption for children really usurped the whole analysis in this case, right? And so going back to thinking about, you know, support decision-making, we put that in our brief because there was the sense that perhaps we could have gotten to know Marion a little bit better and, got, and, and, and figured out what she really wanted, right? The legislature did not speak to this issue. I, the court got it wrong, right? There's nothing in the statute that says that a, an adult's uh, consent can be dispensed with. So, so that the dissent is on the right path here. But I think as advocates, I'm just kind of trying to push us a little further to think you know, how can we look at capacity differently? There's a part in our brief where I thought it was really, and my, I give all credit to my students who wrote this. He wrote, the process of support decision-making is starkly different from that of psych a psychological expert or judge asking questions to ascertain whether Marion understands the meaning of adoption. So in both of these instances, you've got questions being asked, but you don't have this sort of holistic sense of a, a team of people trying to ascertain, you know, capacity and consent. So I think we have to, to ask ourselves, what is the role of experts when we're talking about these cases, right? When we're talking about capacity cases, whether it's adoption, 
sexual rights, the right to keep your child. Um, and then I Natalie, can I can I chime in with something quickly? Sure, I, sure. I think, what, thank you. Uh, you. You know, you're you're. I think you're right on the on the mark in talking about the, the infantilization of Marion. But in, in thinking about this, I think it goes beyond that. I, in addition to the legal work, I've worked in day treatment programs for people with developmental disabilities, and I've gotten to know through family and through work adults with dementia. And we use IQ scores in ages to not just infantilize, but we're dehumanizing people. That's not who they are. And it, it, it's, a, it's a, an IQ score or giving somebody an age, it's this unidimensional measure of, of something that is very, very multidimensional. A, 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 a 50 year old uh, adult man or woman with an intellectual disability, whatever their IQ score is, they're not like a five-year-old or they're not like a 10-year-old. They have their own unique experiences because it's not just your, your innate intellectual ability, but it's your experience. And human experience has far, probably far more to do with who we are than the number that you achieve on your IQ test. So I'm sorry, I just wanted to- No, I, no, yeah, I could, this is something <laughs> I, I, taught my, I taught to my students about. We have this whole class on looking at the history of um, the construction of disability and the use of IQ tests and the use of um, eugenics theories to uh, strip legal rights away from persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So that's absolutely right. Um, and in terms of uh, the last thing we wanted to bring to the court's attention is, you know, given this sort of broader policy impact, Right, so this case is a case of first impression. As far as I can see, there hasn't been any cases that are similar to this case. And this video that I showed you was from 2017 from Montana. And the reason it even made the news, it was the first time an adult with a disability was adopted by adults. So we actually don't know the extent that this is happening. But one thing I believe about sexual rights, um, adult adoption of people with disabilities, um, the right to cohabitate, is that they're not, they're not cases that we're gonna read about. They might show up in the news. So I do believe that these issues certainly are happening, right? And they're out there and that it's you know, sort of our responsibility to think about you know, how are we going to kind of strategize to change the dialogue and the way that we're looking at these capacity issues on, on, on issues that are so intimate to a person's life. The right to choose who your family is, the right to get married, the right to, have, to engage in sexual um, relationships with other people. Like as advocates, how are, how are we gonna present that information? And that was one role of, of the amicus brief, right? Is to educate, to highlight different strategies, to think about, well, what are the constitutional implications of, of taking away this right to consent? And then ultimately what the, what the court did is they did create a de facto right for a non-family caregiver to adopt somebody with a disability, right? It's de facto. And I think that, you know, Judge Rivera really goes into this quite nicely um, in her dissent. So, you know, so I wanted to give this over, if Sheila wanted to jump in, if there's things that I maybe didn't talk about um, that she mentioned in her, her intro, I'd love her to jump in and just fill in any gaps before I get into Judge Rivera's dissent. Um, I really appreciate the um, the observation about um, about capacity, in particular, and I, you know, this is something that I'm I'm 
as I read all the briefs again and then pre preparing for today, and, and I read your amicus brief again, um, and I thought about the way the issues were presented to the court. And um, I agree with you, having, having Marion sit for two capacity evaluations with psychologists, and then having her have an ex parte interview with the court didn't further the understanding of who Marion is as a, as a person. And I, I regret that. I, I feel as though that's something that um, we could have developed further, uh, understanding her better, her life, who she is. But I, I wonder how how often you know we fall into these um, constructs as attorneys, where you're where you're in the posture we're in, we're counsel and we're defending an adoption petition, and we looked at it again. I as I explained in the introduction, we were looking at a statute that provided uh, that consent. The consent is required, and we didn't feel as though Marion was capable of consent. There was, there is an opportunity in the statutory text that I quoted. It, it it does say that the judge can, in some cases, dispense with consent. And I, we did um, in in the court of appeals, we had we had briefed the the genesis of that. Um, there was an amendment to the domestic relations law that permitted um, the dispensing with the with consent, but. In our view, the and, the and the court of appeals does you know explains uh, you know nicely explains their 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 view of the legislative history, um, but there was a particular reason for that um, provision to uh, to to permit consent to be dispensed with, and that was more to protect young adults who might be adopted and didn't realize that they that their the people they were living with were actually their their adopted. They're, they're not their biological parent. They're, that the, the, the amendment was designed to, to prevent harm or trauma to, you know, to, that, to that person who might not, not know that. And um, I, I think as a pure matter of statutory construction, it, it was our argument that the, the legislative history didn't support um, dispense, dispensing with consent in this particular context of adult adoption of a person with a disability. And I think the majority of the court felt just as a matter of statutory construction that it could reach that conclusion, that, that it was permissible on the statutory text to permit the, the court to dispense with the consent. Um, I think that the, the the majority when you read the majority the concurring opinion of Judge Wilson and the the dissent of of Judge Rivera, it's it, it's interesting to go back and do that again to think about this. I I I do think that the my my recollection of the concurrence of Judge Rivera was that um, this this really was a statutory consent um, question a question of um statutory construction, but he said it wasn't an easy question, and um. Because we had this legislative history we were grappling with, you know, and um, so I, I, you know that was our perspective. But I, to, I guess I wanted to relate to you. I, I'm, I'm grateful that you know you prompted me really to think about these issues of capacity again, and and how we frame them for courts, and then how we try to arrive um, at strategies around you know advocacy, um, but supported decision making as a strategy that that's well within our grasp now, and we actually have a, a statute in New York. Um, codifying the concept. So, so I'll leave it at that, but, um, but oh, yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, and I think, you know, 
I'm going to be talking about just briefly the legislative history. Um, and Judge Rivera brought that up. So, you know, reading the opinion and reading the concurrence and dissent, it's incredible the statutory interpretation analysis provided that is so different um, from the opinion, the majority opinion, and then the dissent, right? So the majority opinion, in my view, manipulates the statute in such a way to stretch it so far to say that this was within the reasoning um, that the statute was written, that this was contemplated, right? That this is within reason. And um, Judge Rivera so rightly does this really great job, which the, our amicus brief did not do, of going into this legislative history that Sheila brought up and that the whole purpose of dispensing with consent was completely different, right? It, you know, this dispense of consent was enacted with a very narrow purpose to avoid this potential trauma of kids who are over the age of 18 suddenly finding out that their like their their um, adoptive their parents are actually not their biological parents, right? And so she says that you know this is to, to alleviate any harm that of surprise for adoptees over the age of 14 who had no knowledge that their adoptive parents were the biological, and we don't want we want to make sure that the court can control that, which I think is very interesting, but that, that's the legislative history. And, you know, Judge Rivera brings that up and she and, and does a really good job supporting it. And she says more specifically, as she honed in and she, she took out, um, you know, the, the legislative history for the statute, she specifically says, you know, the legislature could not have intended such a dramatic change in the law that limited the rights of adults, um, you know, to lose, their constitutional right to choose who their family was. So essentially that's what we're writing into the statute is that adults with cognitive disabilities can be constitutionally deprived of the right to choose who their family is because the court is making a determination that they can't consent. And that's a huge leap in statutory interpretation uh, that the majority opinion chose not to see. And rather said, okay, let's just focus on the best interest standard but just to go back to that, that best interest standard is the standard that was applied to young people in adoption proceedings, okay? And so you have this sort of, you know, really gymnastics with statutory interpretation that the majority took, censoring the family, censoring, um, you know, marrying can be protected, that paternalistic idea. And that's how that statute was interpreted, using the legislative history to back that up with the best interest. And then looking at Rivera to say, wait a second, back up. Listen, the legislature was very clear. This is to stop the harm of you know 14 years and older to let you know be devastated that their adoptive parents are really uh, their parents are really their adoptive parents. So I thought that she did a really good job in, in that. Um, but one thing that I really loved that I want to highlight is when she says that um, you know, the other side has a complete, I mean, the court has a complete misunderstanding of anti-discrimination theory. This was a highlight, I feel, of the dissent. And so, and I wanted to write this up so people could take their time to read it, but I also just wanted to read it is that, so the majority says, you know, MHLS's interpretation of this law would categorically preclude the adoption of adults who lack the capacity to consent so there's no basis, the court says, to conclude that the legislature wants to deny a whole group of people the benefit of adoption. 
you know, and take away the right to have this loving, legally recognized relationship, right? And stability in a permanent home. And that sounds really like, of course, nobody wants that. But is that what the anti-discrimination theory is saying? And so this made me also think, and this is kind of a stretch, in 2019, Judge Clarence Thomas wrote this uh, concurrence in this case called Box. And in that concurrence, this is, you know, dealt with um, is in this abortion-focused concurrence. And he was talking about eugenics and race and, and essentially saying that we have to look at abortion as racist and, you know, perpetuating eugenic, eugenics ideologies. And so that's what abortion is doing. And he sort of flipped the history of eugenics on its head to say that, you know, uh, you know abortion is equal to eugenics. And I think, in, and this is very different, but stripping away a constitutional right to family to say that we would never want to take away the right of somebody with a disability to be adopted um, is kind of putting anti-discrimination theory on its head, right? And so I think that, I think that's something that courts have sometimes done. It's say, wait a second, we don't want to discriminate um, based on disability, but Rivera handles this very, very well by saying, well, wait, you're misunderstanding the anti-discrimination theory, just like um, Thomas is um, rewriting history to try to perpetuate this myth of abortion. Um, and Rivera says, what would be discriminatory and unjust would be to treat respondent and adults with intellectual limitations differently from all other adults, including subjecting them to new relationships, familiar relationships as opposed without their consent under a law designed for those who can consent. So it's amazing how you can see, right, the sort of anti-discrimination theory by the majority, but Rivera's like, wait, that's, that's just not right. You are basically saying if you're over 14, right, then we, we can, there's two sets of people, those who are over 14 and those with intellectual disabilities, who we can dispense with their consent and that's it. And that's truly problematic. And I thought this was really something we should keep an eye on. And, you know, oftentimes the dissents in the future become the majority opinions. So I think that we can really draw out some of these really strong arguments that Judge Rivera made um, as we advocate um, in future cases that bring up issues of capacity and consent, whether they're marriage and or other related intimate questions being asked. And so I know I took a different kind of, you know, look at presenting this information to you, but I also, it's a CLE, so I wanna also think of it as like advocates and how do we use sort of these kind of, it is a discrete kind of issue, but yet it's not a discrete issue because issue of capacity and consent in the lives of people with intellectual disability is always under a microscope in every facet of their life. So in this instance, we're talking about marriage, right? But, and I'm gonna talk about it in a minute, um, it's still through other areas of life that encompass sexuality. So I just wanna end this discussion of adoption and disability in that this concomitant degree of trust that the expert wanted to say was enough to prove that there's consent versus informed consent. Um, and this is from Rivera's dissent, right? So you can feel this love and connection and, and the majority didn't seem to understand this. You can feel this love and connection and not wanna be adopted by the person taking care of you 
And that affection and love is no substitute for informed consent. And I think that that's, um, that's why I wanted to end this discussion. Sheila, do you wanna add anything before we wrap up and move on to sexuality and marriage? Um, only that I, I, I appreciate your, the juxtaposition of the, of the question is where I, I, have, I, I didn't frame it um, as articulately as you did, Professor, but I, I said earlier when I started that um, I, I felt that we were, the advocates were coming at the, the question from the, focusing on the consent and the ability to consent and um, the concern that this is, an adoption would be a regime that would be imposed upon someone without their consent. But the other the other side are our adversaries in the proceeding, the petitioners' counsel, and, and the courts. And, and you know, to frame the issue differently, it was more well. Your position is depriving this person who could never consent, as you know, as we think of capacity typically. Um, but you you're depriving her of the benefits of adoption, and I that's that's how the, the issues ended up being framed. So I, I appreciate your. Your your dis your, your discussion and the, and, the, and the slides that you just displayed, um, I think, really uh, framing those issues um, more clearly for us to think about. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say before we move on from adoption, and I I, I know people can disagree. Um, we're always on different sides of issues, and this is a novel question. And I think everyone approached the case with with very good intentions. Um, we also, as as counsel, did not feel the adoption was in um, Marion's best interests, if you if you get to the best interest analysis, um, and we we said it was a, you know two discrete questions, consent, and then best interest. But and I don't want to belabor the point, but from our investigation, you know, Marion lived in a in a, in a home and in a family environment under what what's called the family care program. She obviously was loved and well cared for and had relationships and but she had the protection and the benefits of being in the OPWDD service delivery system including oversight by the justice center if there was an allegation of abuse or mistreatment um, once you're adopted you're you're not living in that structure anymore you're in like you're a family and you're living with your parents it's a different it's a different um you know oversight structure and one of the things that was briefed was, you know, again, the benefits of oversight and protection and advocacy through various um, means through the um, home and community-based waiver program and all of the, the safeguards that are set up through the mental hygiene law and, and regulations. So um, I think we, I think that was another aspect of the case that we certainly were concerned about, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and just, I know we're a little behind real quick. I, I always wondered also, there's a whole statutory regime called guardianship, Article 81, that is, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of issues with guardianship, but it's replete with due process protections, and it, it could have achieved the same goal with, while securing, you know, Marion's due process protections, and I always wonder, I mean, I, I read the, I read the record, and it came up a few times, I always wondered, the legislature was very clear that, that was something that could have been executed, and instead of something that really to removed any due process protections for Marion. Okay, let's go on to marriage. Okay, great. I'm going to zip through this real fast. So marriage, 
the next can I here. interrupt just yeah. a moment yeah um for those who are seeking CLE credit, I need to share the first code word that you'll put on your form. So I'm going to share my screen very briefly. Sorry, Professor. No problem. Okay, so the first code word you should be seeing on your screen is decision. For those of you who are listening, uh, again, that is decision, D-E-C-I-S-I-O-N. That first code word is decision. Thank you. Great, awesome. So the next uh, discussion is gonna be on marriage and I really look forward to hearing Ed. Uh, but I, what I wanted to try to do is sort of frame marriage in the broader um, umbrella of sexuality, which I think also is a broad umbrella of familial relationships and choosing who we want to be in our, in our, in our life in a, a loving, or intimate way. So, you know, sexuality, you know, it's central to all of our lives as an aspect of being human. We can't separate it, right? You can't separate your sexuality from the physiological, the emotional, the cultural, so it's all wrapped up in one. Um, and the world health, you know, this is from um, a scholar who writes about this and it influences so many parts of our lives, sexuality, right? And then the World Health Organization gives us a very broad definition to say, you know, sexuality encompasses so many things. And that this is why I wanted to open up marriage with sexuality. It is sex, it's gender identity and roles, it's sexual orientation, it's eroticism, it's pleasure, it's intimacy, it's reproduction, it's family. So all of these things are sexual. I think we get stuck when we talk about disability and sexuality to talk about sex and STIs and heteronormative ideas of sex but sexuality is much broader and marriage is a part of that umbrella, is under the umbrella of sexuality. Um, and so I know Ed's gonna talk about a little bit about Medicaid and marriage penalty and his experience with, I think his, his brother, uh, I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Um, and one thing, you know, I'm writing an article right now talking about the desexualization of disability as a form of, of structural violence. So I just wanna just really briefly say, you know, one thing that we're gonna be talking about is, you know, marriage and the impact of marriage on persons with disabilities. So when we think about capacity and consent and sexuality, we can't think of it as like a mere marriage. Okay, uh, people with disabilities can get married. Uh, there's so many barriers to access marriage. Um, you can invalidate somebody's marriage under New York law if you feel like you don't have capacity, but it's much, it's just a systemic structure, right? Um, so, for example, when you're thinking about issues of sexuality, who can get married, right? Who has a right to get, we all do, but you have to have a sense of sexuality, a sense of um, bodily autonomy, a sense of um, su sexual support. And one thing that's really lacking for people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities is, is sexual education supports and services. And the cascading consequences of that um, is not being able to have intimate partner relationships, is not being able to, for example, get married because you're not being exposed um, to opportunities of that nature. Guardianship can result in forced sterilization, forced contraception, forced desexualization, surgery. And that's also a part of sort of the system that desexualizes. Overrepresentation in the family regulation system. Let's say you do have children, but there's laws set in place that say we can take your kids away 
because you have an intellectual disability. Then there's a marriage penalty that says, you know what, if you want to get married, you're going to lose your benefits by at least 25%. And then if you're an adult child and, you know, you have, um, I think, a disabled adult child benefit, you know what, you're going to lose that too. So these, all these, all of these things work in tandem as structures that embed desexualization to say, you're not allowed to get married. We don't really want you to live together because we think you might, you know, you might get pregnant. And we're going to make sure we have a guardianship so that we can control your sexuality. And if you choose to have kids, you know what, we're going to try to take them away because the law supports us in doing so. So I just want to, you know, put, you know, marriage, the issue of marriage is much broader and much deeper and much more complex when we're talking about disability. So I'll leave it at that. Um, and I'm going to have, I think Sheila's going to give us a very brief overview of marriage under the law. I'm, I'm going to do that. I have a few slides that um, I'll review, but I really want to reserve and make sure we have enough time for Ed. Um, so um, again, my, my, pre my presentation here is just some foundational material and um, starting with um, marriage and the constitution. Um, Sim, I, I'm quoting from um, Judge Kennedy's decision here, and I think you've you so artfully um, did that in the beginning. So um, the uh, the just the aspirational and, and the, the the language of of Oberfell was really um, important, but that was my starting point. So if you want to move on, Chell, to the next slide, um, we include um, in the materials um, four cases that um, just to provide a little more context, and um, we can move on the. Um, the slides uh, mention, of course, the Loving case in 1967, um, where the court, the Supreme Court of the United States said state laws prohibiting interracial marriage violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, and that such prohibition violated a fundamental freedom. Um, the, the really the point of citing this case and the others in the in the slides is just to demonstrate the, the value that the court of um, the Supreme Court has placed on, on the marital relationship. Uh, there's no constitutional right to marriage, but the way the court has framed the issues, it's a, it's a substantive due process right and um, uh, enshrined in our, in our liberty and it's uh, an extra, extraordinarily important uh, value. So just moving on, um, the, again, the, the, the point of these slides are, are just to, to, to draw from various, um, various Supreme Supreme Court uh, precedents. Um, in Wisconsin, there was a statute, for instance, that could prevent, a person could be denied a marriage license if they were behind in their child support obligations. Um, so it was, uh, the court said that's that's denying the marriage um, opportunity to someone who might be indigent or un un unable to, to, to pay their obligations. And, and it's just, it was, again, a violation of those, those fundamental principles of um, the right to marry. Um, so, and then the next slide is um, dealing with uh, the Turner case, which placed um, Missouri and other states had placed limitations on the right of people who, who are incarcerated um, to, to marry. And um, then the last case um, was uh, Obergefell, and um, of course, Judge, Judge Kennedy described uh, marriage um, that has a, a trans, transcendent importance, um, regardless of their station in life. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful decision. I, I hadn't read it in a while. Again, 
preparing for um, the program today, um, and it's included in your materials. But again, um, really emphasizing the, the the value of marriage and the importance of marriage in our society. And um, just moving on, the um, their requisites to to marry and um, the. These are generally governed um, by, by state law. And um, you can move on to the next slide again. I, I wanna make sure we have enough time for Ed, um, but it's uh, marriage is deemed a, a civil contract um, governed again, New York State Domestic Relations Law Section 10. And um, there are um, voidable marriages, but we've, uh, and we've given you, you've, we've given you a, a case on this point, um, which is um, on the next slide. Uh, so an article 81 guardian can petition to annul a marriage where the person under guardianship um, lack capacity at the time of the marriage. And um, then a 17A guardianship shall not terminate at, at, at the time of marriage. And um, again, these are just some, some really fundamental principles uh, providing a little bit of framework. And then going on to what we really want to focus on today is um, marriage and disability. And um, I think that um, I'd like to really offer Ed the opportunity to, to pick up here. Um, there's, a, Shell, there's a couple of slides you can just show, but I think I, I would like to yield to, um, to Ed because I think we want to make sure he has enough time. Is that my is that my cue? Ed, yes. Ed, Ed, oh, Ed, you, Ed, you are you are up. Okay, thank you, um, and thank you, Sheila. That was a great intro, uh, and thank you, Natalie. Um, really, just fascinating stuff. Um, uh, as Sim mentioned, you know my background is a little bit different. Um, I'm an estate planning attorney by training, and while the majority of my practice does focus on uh, working with families uh, who have individuals with disabilities and those individuals as part of the practice. Um, you know, I think the reason for my invitation here to participate today was less my legal background and more the backstory, which uh, as Sim had mentioned, I do have a brother with a developmental disability and that, uh, uh, and that brother of mine has been married to a woman with a developmental disability for, for 18 years. And so I guess in the context of that personal experience, I think it gives rise to two perspectives that may be relevant as you think through the practical implications of marriage. Um, I think it does give me, uh, the background certainly gives me some familiarity with legal issues, uh, primarily in the area of financial entitlements, but also in the context of traditional estate planning that arise when, when people with disabilities marry. And then I think I can also offer some insight into some of the practical challenges in helping someone who is not fully capable of independence navigate a marital relationship. And related to that, uh, I think I also have a very discreet sense of what can reasonably be expected from both formal and informal supports, especially the next generation uh, uh, when a couple uh, sets off on this path. <clears throat> Acknowledging that disability uh, is so varied I think one has to declare his hermeneutic when you begin a uh, presentation of this nature. So, you know, our, our experiences, our opinions, the advice that we provide, all of it is filtered necessarily through our personal experiences. And so uh, as you consider some of the things that I'll be discussing here today, I guess it, 
would make the most sense and be only be appropriate to give you a little bit of background on my brother. Um, and to be clear, I'm not talking out of turn here. He knows that I do a lot of these programs. I talk to families, lawyers, and other professionals. And, and, and uh, over the years, he has actually joined me in these presentations. He acknowledges his disability. He is uh, uh, capable. I couldn't be more proud of who he is and what he's accomplished in his life. Um, so uh, I'm sharing information about him uh, with his permission. Um, so in, my brother is 51 years old. Back in the day, the diagnosis uh, was borderline mentally retarded. We don't use that term today. I think today, the term you would most uh, uh, you would most uh, associate with him is high functioning, developmentally disabled. Lives relatively independently. He works full time for the state of New York in a 55B position, which is a labor law section that gives some preferences in hiring to, to people with disabilities. Drives a vehicle. He's a volunteer fireman. He volunteers at his church. He goes to the grocery store, he can go to a restaurant, he buys his own clothes. Um, so from a distance, things look pretty good. Um, yet, you know, he couldn't balance a checkbook to save his life. He really can't manage a household budget. Most of his financial transactions are done through debit card transactions. Um, and he relies on others for support in making most significant life decisions, medical decisions, financial decisions. And certainly any type of crisis, anything that deviates from uh, his day-to-day -day normal activity um, will require uh, support. He'll reach out for support. Um, and, and just in general, I guess he needs regular oversight and reminders for most things, to clean the house, personal grooming, maintaining the vehicle, uh, eating an appropriate diet, all of the things that go into living semi-independently. So the, the way I look at it or the way I've described it is that he really just needs a little bit of help, but in almost every area of his life. And if you pull that little bit of help, the wheels fall off the wagon and little issues become larger issues and then those things will cascade. And I think it, it could end up very poorly for him if that support was pulled. And if any member or any people who are watching this presentation have a family member with a similar disability, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, his wife, uh, very similar across all domains, capacity, capability, financial, medical decision-making. Um, they're both in the OPWDD waiver program, and that's important to keep in mind as we go through the presentation. So uh, the marriage, well, they met about 25 years ago at a recreational event that was sponsored by one of our local disability service providers, and they were married in 2004. Um, when they met and they began discussing marriage, you know, they, they established a personal relationship. They established it independently, and our family supported that. You know, at the time, uh, my brother was always able to drive, but um, old school, somewhat conservative parents were all practicing Catholics. And so the concept of talking about um, living independently or living together without marriage was really not something that was discussed uh, at length. But the families did encourage marriage as a way of acknowledging their intentions to, to be with each other. Um, uh, and so they eventually were married in 2004. And, and I, I can say without, without qualification that it was probably, other than my own, it was probably the best wedding I've ever attended. And I say that not because it was particularly fancy or ornate or anything like that, but it really was because of what was represented in this union and everybody at that wedding uh, felt that they felt the vibe there. Two individuals who've 
taken it on the chin over the years because of their disability, have declared in public their commitment to each other. Um, and they had all of the support of our extended families and our friends. Um, and it really was, uh, if you think about an aspirational standard of how this could play out, I would say at that stage, it really was it. Um, it was wonderful. When they initially considered marriage, um, and as we, you know, we made the commitment together as a family, and we were fortunate to have a good working relationship with her family, um, you know, from my perspective, and, and given my practice background, I'm typically focusing on two areas, and that's in the context of my brother or other families that we may counsel as they're going through this same, uh, uh, they're going through the same process, and we're often focusing on government benefits. Um, and to a lesser extent, traditional estate and long-term care planning issues that come up for this couple uh, with the disability, just like they would for anybody else. So we'll start with the benefit issues. And this is not intended to be any type of a detailed summary of these programs. God forbid, uh, you, you, I think everybody would leave the program if we went uh, into too much detail about this stuff, because it's it, some of it is really mind-boggling uh, in just how uh, arcane and esoteric it can get. But there are some general concepts that I think everybody should be aware of if this is a topic of interest to you. Um, so on the benefit side, the three concepts are this concept of deeming, D-E-E-M-I-N-G, the concept of spousal budgeting, and then what I would define as program-specific issues and biases that exist in many programs. We'll talk about one of them here. So this, the, the concept of deeming exists in most programs that are means-tested, and, and what that term means, means-tested, and again, I'm assuming most people have a basic understanding of this, is some government benefits you get um, because you are you have a disability or meet some other criteria, and it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or how much you earn. Others, and, and I would say some of the most significant programs that support people with disabilities in the community, they do look at financial eligibility. So the concept of deeming is the idea that income and resources of a legally responsible relative are going to be considered in determining the eligibility of the person who is applying for a program. And the most typical deeming categories are we deem a parent's assets to a minor child and we deem a spouse's asset, one spouse's asset um, to another spouse. So if, if one member of a couple is participating in a means-tested program and she gets married, her spouse's income and resources, assets and savings are added to hers when determining whether the couple now um, qualifies financially uh, or whether she continues to qualify financially for the program that she's participating in. And depending on what the result of that analysis is, eligibility could be impacted or discontinued altogether. Um, the second concept is spousal budgeting. Um, it, it, it's a related concept, but the idea here is that income and resource allowances for a couple will not simply be a simple addition of two individual allowances, but they have established separate allowances, income and resource allowances for the couple because they have become married or because they are married. And, and sometimes those uh, spousal budgeting works to the advantage of the couple. Uh, a common example of that would be the increased income and resource allowances for one spouse residing in the community when another spouse is receiving care in an institutional setting. So some of you may have experience with this with a parent or an elderly relative where one is applied for Medicaid while the other uh, is at home. 
um, the spouse residing in the community, the community spouse um, uh, is what the term the Medicaid program uses, the spouse residing in the community is entitled to keep an enhanced allowance more than uh, just uh, the traditional married couple allowance for two individuals receiving Medicaid funded services in the community. It, and so while this isn't really a program focused on the nursing home population, the reason it's relevant here is that spousal budgeting applies to many of our waiver programs, including the OBWDD waiver, as well as the, the TBI waiver. And in the materials I provided, there's a general information uh, system message, uh, GIS 22MA14. And if you look at items 9, 10, and 11 on page 2 uh, of that, uh, of that uh, administrative transmittal, you'll see those enhanced spousal allowances. So spousal budgeting is a good thing. It really came about in the late 1980s with a concern over impoverishing a couple when only one of them needs Medicaid funded, in that case, institutional level care. But as I say, spousal budgeting does apply in some waiver programs. Sometimes um, spousal budgeting is to the disadvantage of the couple. And I think that's best illustrated in the, in the context of the SSI program, um, where the allowances for a couple take into consideration what the SSI program, and this is a theme I think that runs through a lot of these financial benefit programs, um, they consider to be the savings that are associated with cohabitation. Um, so if you're living together and you're sharing your expenses, you won't need as much money and therefore they don't allow each member of a married couple to retain their full single individual income allowance that they were getting or that they had available to them prior to the marriage. And so the, uh, the other item that I included uh, with the materials is a, uh, an issue paper from the SSI program, Supplemental Security Income Program. And if you look at the first paragraph on page two, it makes reference to the fact that two individuals cohabitating who choose not to get married um, will be in a better financial situation than if they decided to get married because the allowance for total income into the household and the amount that they can have in savings is going to be greater if we add two individual allowances than we apply than if we apply the, the married couple allowance. And you can also see that as well on page two of that, that uh, GIS message I, I included as well. If you look at um, that chart, if you see how, what the allowances are for a single individual, and then you look down for a two-person household, you, you're not getting two times the single individual amount, you're getting something less. So um, uh, we I think when we talk about this primarily, most people talk about this in the context of the SSI program. Um, and I think we have to just set aside for a moment and bite our lips um, because all of us understand that nobody can really live an appropriate, an appropriate life um, based on these allowances to begin with, $900 a month uh, for a single individual with a disability. So set aside the fact that these aren't realistic figures to begin with, there is a financial penalty for lack of a better term um, for the decision to get married in the context of the SSI and in some cases, the Medicaid program. The last one uh, is what I'll call a program-specific issue or a bias. And it's best illustrated by something called the Childhood Disability Benefit. I think Natalie made reference to it earlier. 
And so this is a social security benefit, which allows an adult with a disability having an onset prior to the age of 22, who does not have another source of income or not enough, in, uh, not enough income to, to, to be defined as adequate under the social security program, uh, that individual can collect a benefit off the parent's social security record. And that benefit would be 50% of what the parent's social security amount is while the parent is living and three quarters of what the parent was getting uh, or after the parent dies. Um, so it's a derivative benefit from the parent's record. And that amount is in most instances higher than the maximum amount that would be available under the SSI program, which is what's available to you if you can't work and have no other source of income. And the childhood disability benefit is not means tested and it comes with Medicare coverage, which is excellent health insurance coverage and it typically offers you access to um, uh, medical providers who uh, will not accept Medicaid as a form of reimbursement because, well, they make more money uh, if they're paid through the Medicare program. However, an individual cannot be married and still meet the criteria for eligibility under the Childhood Disability Benefit Program. And the last item that I included in your materials is uh, an excerpt from the POMS, the Program Operation Manual System from the SSI program. And you'll see on page two, I've highlighted there where they, they uh, point out that uh, a condition of receiving the Childhood Disability Benefit is that you're not married. So if you think about that, really, I mean, over the life expectancy of a young individual with a disability, that difference, the difference between collecting a childhood disability benefit of say $1,500 a month versus an SSI benefit of $900 a month carried out over your life expectancy, depending on when you begin to collect, it can mean tens of thousands and some, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost income, plus you lose access to providers who will not accept Medicaid as the sole source of payment. Now, in the case of my brother and, and his wife, they dodged a bullet. You know, they're both in the OPWDD waiver program, and, and uh, they do require Medicaid-funded supports to help them meet their needs. But because they both work, they're budgeted through something called the Medicaid buy-in program, which is really just a me Medicaid budgeting methodology that allows for the disregard of income, so we don't look at what they earn, uh, they both work in the 55B state position. Um, and the resource limit, the amount that they're allowed to keep is substantially higher. The deeming rules do apply, but again, when we, when we combine the amount of, of resources that they are able to save after they meet their expenses on a weekly and monthly basis, they're not going to bump up against that resource limit. And if they did, um, you know, uh, we've prepared special needs trusts to help them protect their assets. So we've, we've created an avenue for them to maintain financial eligibility. So it, the marriage in their instance did not involve, because they work, um, it did not involve um, a, a loss of any benefits. But it is a very common uh, uh, challenge for families that are considering this. Now, those are benefit issues, what other issues arise, and you know, in no particular order, and not for resolution or in-depth discussion here. But as an estate planner, we think about you know, what do we think about in our business? We think about death and disability. That's why you know, nobody wants to they, they change the subject when we tell them what we do for a living at a cocktail party. Um, but it's what we think about. Um, and so, and, and when we have a couple with a disability who are capable of making independent decisions, as my brother and his wife are, um, we talk about planning. 
So do they have advanced directives? Do they have wills? The same types of uh, conversations we would have with any young married couple. But these are challenging, much more challenging they are for a typical couple that comes in. Who's, who are we going to name as the agent on, uh, on a healthcare proxy? In New York, you can name one person. This is the person who would have the ability to make critically important uh, medical decisions um, at the point of crisis if the person with a disability is not capable of making them their own. Normally, a couple comes in, well, we're going to name the spouse as primary and then you know some other family member as secondary beneficiary, but if, I, if the spouse is someone who herself has difficulty making any significant life decisions on her own, do we also make her the agent who is going to make uh, decisions, uh, uh, critically important medical decisions that may have to be made very quickly? We name her in that. Same concept with the power of attorney. These are financial decisions. Do we create supplemental needs trust for the surviving spouse in their wills, or, or do we direct the individual's assets back to to their family. And who sits in on that conversation? You might say, well, of course, you know, a normal couple, you would expect that the uh, uh, surviving spouse should be the beneficiary of the assets of the predeceased spouse's estate. That makes complete sense. Um, let me assure you that it's not quite that easy when you have families who are, if not involved in the conversation itself, they are always in the background. Um, how do we handle the spousal right of election? When the surviving spouse receives means-tested benefits, first spouse dies if they have income or resources available to them. There's a right of there is a right of election, a right to receive a portion of the predeceased spouse's estate. How do we navigate that when the surviving spouse is likely going to be in a means-tested program? Many of these couples will receive Medicaid funding throughout their lives, and Medicaid is subject to recovery and estate claims when they die. So, if we're looking to, if we have to working individuals with disabilities who are able to accumulate some property over the course of their lives, retirement assets, maybe they own a home. Um, do we engage in asset protection planning, just like we would talk about with any other family who may want to ensure that their assets are protected for others when the second spouse dies? Who sits in on that consultation? Uh, and, and is that plan subject to challenge for lack of understanding? Because now we're talking, we could be talking about significant assets here. Should we consider a single transaction guardianship under Article 81 to sanction, to get a court to sanction that plan? Conversation comes up. And just a number of questions that we've wrestled with in my family and on behalf of our clients over the years. Now, some of these are planning issues that are going to arise whether the person is married or not. But the issue here is that you know, families are typically involved in these conversations and, and they involve very sensitive uh, and often emotional and awkward topics of conversation. And I guess the question is often um, when families are considering, and, and I keep talking about families here, I acknowledge that, individuals are considering marriage. And again, you're thinking about, um, we're thinking about the dynamic in my own family, but it's something that is repeated and it exists across most of our clients, where you have someone who has, uh, who's been uh, fortunate to have supportive family members and they do have a limitation, they will constantly reach out or consistently reach out to the family for input, um, validation, um, support, whatever term you wanna use. Um, so in the context of these conversations, the families are often uh, involved at the request of the individual with the disability. So when we talk about this to the family at large, um, if they knew what was coming down the pipe, would they have supported the marriage? I don't know. 
Um, and you know, different families have different different thoughts about this. From my perspective and private practices, I just want to make sure that we're giving full airing on uh, the practical side and some of these challenges before they go down this route. So if we return back to my brother and his marriage, you know, after they got married, life in many ways was exactly how you would script it. And we bought a condominium together. My brother was initially working in a, uh, a restaurant position and really awkward hours at work on the weekends. So he was able to, to find a job uh, with the state of New York. They both worked in downtown Albany. They were able to work, drive to work together, eat lunch together. They participated in family holidays. They even hosted a few took vacations a few times a year. So, you know, things were looking pretty good. Life was good. Um, now, that's what it looks like from a distance, but let's pop the hood on this transaction. What really goes into this operation? The things that the outside world really doesn't see. So, as I said, they bought a condo and that's fantastic. Um, but every single step of that transaction was, I will call it supervised, but in many instances, it was just dictated by the family members. So choosing an appropriate neighborhood and, and selecting the condominium itself, talking to a broker and negotiating a purchase price, arranging for the inspection of the property, filling out the loan paperwork, obtaining homeowner's insurance in an appropriate amount. It was all handled by the family. Medicaid staff does not get involved with that type of a transaction. They both work full time and they have bank accounts where their paycheck goes. They have direct access to those funds, which is great. And it provides them with tremendous independence that our families by and large respect. But other than checking to see if they've got money in their accounts when they use the ATM, they really have no general grasp on overall household budget. Neither of them could tell you how much they make on an annual basis, how much their paychecks are on a biweekly basis, um, or have any sense of just how much their weekly, budget, weekly or monthly expenses would be. And any issues which arise in connection with the financial management of the household may receive a collection notice for an unpaid bill disputing an incorrect invoice, deciding whether to change providers for cable, phone, garbage, cleaning service. You know, the drudgery of basic financial management, it's all handled by family members with some cursory support, check writing, and other support by Medicaid-funded staff. But the quarterbacking is done by the family. Both receive services through OPWDD, and it's been wonderful. They're both in self-direction, um, and it provides critically important supports and reimbursement. That's great. But what does that mean? Each year, two Medicaid recertifications for continuing coverage need to be filed, and neither of them would be capable of following the instructions for the recertification application. They could not independently compile the financial statements that are necessary to submit with the application. Uh, they could not compile the Medicaid in or medical information necessary for part of a continuing disability review. Medicaid-funded staff can handle some very basic applications, but if we're talking about a married couple, we are looking at spousal allowances. We are making sure that they're budgeted through the correct program. And in many instances, our experience has been continually that Medicaid-funded staff are often uncomfortable handling these Medicaid applications, or if they do it, they often make mistakes. So they end up being handled by family, or in this case, because of my professional background, me and my staff handle have handled all of this. Ed, Ed, can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure. Do you, this is very, very, very poignant and, and very helpful to hear. But do you think what you're describing could be accurately characterized as supported decision making 
by by and with the family for the both of them. I mean, they're both doing this voluntarily and they both understand that they need help and they're reaching out to the family and you're, oh. you're doing it. So would that, do you think that would be an accurate characterization or, or not? Spot on accurate. We've been doing supported decision-making in our family since they were first able, capable of, of self-expression. Um, that's just the way it, that's just the way it's been. And I, I have to say that the majority of my, the majority of my clients, and of course, it's a, it's a selective group, right? They, these are people who are proactive enough to reach out and, and find an attorney who practices in this area and to an extent have, a have the financial resources to pay us. But the majority of our family members in varying degrees do their very best to try to support independent decisions. So yes, as a simple answer to your question, I would say we absolutely do that. Um, but I think, you know, so, you know, the, 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 the idea that there is a substantial amount of support um, uh, is an important one because, you know, those were the good things, disagreements, potential conflict. And how does that, you know, how does that work out in, in, in our family's dynamic? And, and again, consistent with what I've seen with clients, often the, the spouse will confide in their parent. Each of them will confide in a parent and it's the parents that actually work out the resolution to the problem and, and head off a, a larger crisis at the pass. Um, so it, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is this level of support, some of it through Medicaid, but the overwhelming majority of it is provided by family in our case, but it could be friends. Informal supports is what made this thing actual fun, actually function. Now, if I fast forward 18 years now, uh, where we are today, my father, um, my brother's best friend by far and most capable advocate, he died in 2021. The, the, the remaining three parents are all aging and dealing with health issues of their own. And I don't think there's any exaggeration to say that they have all been looking for an exit ramp from these responsibilities for the past 10 years. They don't have the steam or the resources uh, or the energy to do what they did 18 years ago. Um, I would say, you know, I, I was I, I watched with interest the, the clip that Natalie showed at, or uh, Natalie showed at the outset of her presentation, that young family. And you saw the, the celebration of the adoption and there were just a, there were throngs of people there. That's what it was like in the early days. Um, but it ain't like that now in our in our family um, and, and in many families where they are wrestling with the aging of the primary caregiver. In our case, I'm the only sibling and my brother's wife has a brother. Uh, we've done our level best to step in and provide support, but we both work full time and we simply cannot commit the same amount of time and effort as our parents. And we would typically look for support from Medicaid funded staff, but those supports uh, that are available for us are nothing like they were back in the early days of my practice in the, the late 90, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so we and our family are experiencing now what's the, what, what is the overwhelming majority of the next generation uh, of supports. So I'm talking about the transition from a parent as a caregiver down to the next generation, siblings uh, often, but others. Um, that's kind of what we're wrestling with right now. And so some of these little issues that would arise between a couple, you know, one of them spends too much money, the other one doesn't do a share of the household chores. One is making unhealthy life choices, eating too much, smoking, drinking, whatever it, it might be, or bigger issues. One spouse's health has declined or the disability has manifested itself um, uh, and more severely and the other spouse is simply unable to provide adequate support in the home. Um, spouse loses employment and they don't, don't have enough uh, income to pay their bills. We have to navigate these, 
these conversations and these issues. And they often require very delicate, uncomfortable, and awkward conversations. Now, many married couples go through this, and, and, and some don't make it. The difference here is that these married couples that we're talking about, by reason of their disability, they cannot navigate these issues without an army of support. And that's perhaps we talk about it takes a village. From my perspective, I think it takes an army. Um, you know, where, and so where does this support come from? You know, in, in most cases, in, in the early days, it's the parents. Because what do we know about parents? Well, as a general rule, they have an unlimited amount of time and their services are free. Now, what happens when they're no longer around? And that gets us to what I, I will stand by and say is an ironclad and immutable law in the world of disability advocacy, which is when a caregiver parent leaves the picture, there are only three options to fill that gap. Other family member or friends were going to do stuff for free, Medicaid-funded supports, or privately paid supports. That's all you got, right? So I can say from personal and professional experience that family and informal supports will rarely be able to commit the time required to fill a parent's shoes. And I suspect that most people who are participating in this program know that Medicaid funding is not getting more generous over time. We know, those of us who live in, in, and interact with this system, staff turnover is high if you can even find staffing. And the caliber of the help has declined gradually over the years as the amount of reimbursement that people, uh, the amount of money that, excuse me, that they can make doing this type of direct care has really not kept up with inflation. And so they can make more money doing other simpler things out in the economy. And then finally, the availability of private funding is going to vary significantly from family to family. But in most instances, what's required to, to even come close to replicating the quality of life that existed when, when the parents were active and involved is, is more than most families are willing or able to commit. So you know, where am I going in all of this? Am I saying that people with disabilities shouldn't marry? Of course not. What I'm saying is that it's important when you're discussing the preservation of a right to give equal consideration of the practical requirements of its exercise. Because in the context of marriage, it's easy to get married. You get your license, you have the ceremony, you get your certificate. It's harder to be married for all of us. And the difference is that depending on the level of disability, this married couple has to involve others in navigating these you know, personal and sometimes uncomfortable interactions. So you know, when I'm talking to other families, I urge them to consider whether some commitment short of marriage as an alternative is a better fit. I can tell you the postscript in my own life um, is that my brother and his wife's marriage is now terminating. So now I've had the, you know, we talk about experience. I've had the, the experience of counseling, counseling them through uh, the decision to get married, navigating uh, uh, the marriage with them, uh, and now going through the process of counseling through the termination of the marriage. Um, uh, so, you know, what would our, what would our family do? Uh, if we were to, to rewind back to 2004. And I guess my answer to that question uh, would be that it depends on the day you ask me the question. I really don't know um, whether we would encourage or discourage um, uh, the, the formality of marriage and, and suggest that they look at something short of that. Um, but as I say, it, it's not to in any way minimize um, uh, the, the, the aspirational standard of allowing two people with disabilities who, who have decided to commit themselves to each other to minimize the importance of trying to encourage it. Um, but I also don't want there to be any, any misconceptions about what is really involved. And, and you should not um, think that the system 
OPWDD, TBI, whatever that is, Medicaid funded supports, SSI, Social Security, that is not going to duplicate in any sense or, or replicate in any credible sense the support that's a bit that is required, uh, primarily provided to the family to make something like this work. Thank you, Ed. Uh, that was very sobering. And uh, I think we have the subject of another uh, seminar on OPWDD services and how they have been slowly disappearing over the past Ooh. 20 years because the importance of case management and service coordinators in, the, in these roles is imperative. And we've been seeing for years caseloads increasing and further inability of them to provide this level of supports that at least they, they, they used to, which may not have been adequate absent your family, but uh, thank you. Th thank you very much. So I think we have about 10 minutes left for questions. I'm gonna go through the Q&A. And of course, if any other panelists wanna ask questions of, of panelists, um, that is absolutely fine. Um, so I have a question. Oh, just one moment. As we look for some questions and think through questions, I have the second and final CLE code word to share. Of course. So I'm going to share that on the screen now. That second code word, this is the final code word of the day. For those of you seeking CLE credit is contract. That's C-O-N-T-R-A-C-T. -T. Your second and final code word is contract. Thanks, folks. Okay, contract it is. Okay, let's see. Well, we well we have a comment. I'm just going to share a comment at the beginning. Uh, all wonderful presenters, thank you. So, uh, just want to share that with you guys. And so, someone else said the best. Um, I, I had a question, Sim. If I oh, if, oh yeah, please go ahead, Sheila. Ed, as I listened to your um, discussion about your your brother and his wife, um, you mentioned they were both in the in the home and community-based waiver program. So, so I was curious if if they each had a care manager or did they share a care manager? And how did how did those relationships, how were those managed in a in a marital relationship? It's a great question. Um, and and I'll I'll second Sims. You know, comment about the fact that it's probably worth a, a, a program of its own and, and really what has happened, you know, and I don't want to seem ungrateful, um, you know, OPWDD services and, and, and what we have available to us in New York. I mean, it really is a blessing. Um, and, and both of them are in something called self-direction, which is, a you know, a, a, I guess a newer and, and one might say more progressive and generous in some ways, more progressive and generous um, uh, variation on traditional labor uh, services. But yes, they, they in the old days, they called them service coordinators. Now we call them care managers. They each have a care manager. Uh, when they first started out um, and, and through the majority of their marriage, they would be, we would have, um, uh, we would have, the, you know, the, twice a year they have to, these days, it's twice a year they'd have to meet and the families would, they, we'd all get together and, and the staff, some of the staff was shared. So um, not necessarily the care managers, they each had their own care manager, but um, what they call uh, residential rehabilitation, the people that, the person that comes in and helps them review their bills and write checks each month, that was shared uh, staff. Um, and some other aspects were shared, but as a general rule, they're entitled to, and they each have individual 
Um, they each have individual uh, staff and individual budgets. Um, uh, and, you know, just the, 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 the other observation there is that I would say, you know, I've, I've done this now for, for a while. Uh, my brother's been in the OPWDD system for, you know, 20 years now and, and um, uh, worked in this space for quite some time. And Sim made passing reference to it, but in the early days, I think the case, the standard caseload of a care, what now called a care manager might have been 15, 20 people. Now you're upwards of 50 people. Um, and, and a lot of what has happened in the OPWDD transitions recently has, has relegated the care managers to do a lot of paper pushing, respectful observation, but that's what it comes down to. And it's no fault of their own. I think many of them would prefer to, prefer to be doing more hands-on direct care because for many of them, that's how they got, why they got into this business to begin with. Um, <clears throat> but as a practical solution, as someone who we can call on in a pinch, to actually uh, provide hands-on direct support, it's just not it's it's not practical, and and that's not just one man's opinion. I think if you you, you talk to many individuals who uh, are whose family members are being supported through the OPWDD system, you'll you'll get the same answer. There are exceptions to the rule, but but as a general rule, that's the case. Thank you, Ed. Um, Sheila, I think this question, or perhaps Natalie, is is, is for you. Uh, does adoption by a family care provider deprive a resident of regulatory protections? Family care providers can't treat a resident as their child. I can um, address that first, and um, uh, Natalie, if you want to respond after. But but that was our yes. That's uh, that's my opinion, or that's what, and that's how we briefed uh, the case. That once Marion was adopted. Um, she was no longer within the OPWDD system. Essentially, she's living with her mother and father. And um, so she doesn't have the oversight and the protection of the OPWDD system. When we raised the issue um, in the context of this litigation, um, the response was, well, Marilyn, Marilyn, Marion would have the benefit of the adult protective system, which is part of um, what the acronym is APS, Department of Social Services. But um, as many people know who are participating in this program, or maybe you don't know, um, there is a, an old um, memorandum of understanding between what was formerly OMRDD and the Departments of Social Services. And the way that memorandum has been interpreted, DSS on the APS division of DSS largely will not open an investigation for somebody with a developmental disability saying it's the responsibility of OPWDD. And the other side of it, OPWDD will often say, well, that's not our responsibility. That's, you know, that's the APS function. So um, I, I hate to say this, and my commentary kind of leads to another thing, but our, our service delivery system is so siloed in New York. You have OMH, OPWDD, you have OASS, you have APS, but um, there are times where we're advocating for people who are in real jeopardy and to identify the agency that will actually intervene and serve that person can be very difficult. So in response to the question, that, 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 that was one of the arguments we made. And, and, and as counsel, we, we didn't feel the adoption benefited Marion because it took her outside of those protections. And she otherwise enjoyed the benefits of family life through the, for, through the family care program, which is designed to simulate that family and provide that type of family relationship. 
I don't, Professor Chin, did you have a, any other? No, yeah, no, I, I don't. Yeah, I, that's one reason why I, I was wondering in terms of my 81 guardianship, which, ha, which, you know, with all of its flaws, it does have oversight protections. Um, why that wasn't sort of brought up by the court. I guess this is a question for you, or maybe it was, or brought up, you know, during the early stages as an alternative to adoption. I, it, it was, I mean, I think, I don't know if it was well briefed or well developed in the in the in the in the materials that we presented to the court, but I that was my first question as an advocate when the case came into the office. I I, I felt as though is the remedy correct? Is this really adoption, or should we? But isn't that really something completely different? Because strangely enough, is a, a, a parent of an adult child really has no very really has very few if any legal rights over them. That's right. Whereas if you have a guardianship, you acquire, if it's plenary, you acquire full legal rights uh, over them. So it, 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 they're really, yeah. you're really accomplishing two different things. Yeah, that's true. Well, that that's was a good point. Of, I, I know um, our advocate in this case, Kaylin Brennan, did a fantastic job. And I recall reading Kaylin's brief, and she, that was one of the points as we were reviewing the case that Kaylin was making that. I mean, that's why, for example, we have 17A. I mean, as we, as adults, as children with adult developmental disabilities get older and they, they, they the, the parent might look to the remedy of the 17A guardianship to retain some of those, those Definitely. rights. Yes. And the adoption is completely different, right? It, it, it creates that, that mother or the parent child relationship. So to us, the, we, we, we thought it would, the guardianship would have been the better remedy if, but we weren't, you know, it really wasn't developed in the, in the case. You know, initially when the adoption issue came up in that case and before this, you know, I was a bit confounded by why on earth would anybody want to use adoption? And I did a little research and I thought about it and I, I came up with a few things where it could be useful. One would be hospital visitation. If you wanted someone to visit you and only relatives could visit. Um, inheriting apartments in New York City that are, say, rent controlled. Uh, where only a family member uh, could could do it. And then the third thing I thought about, and Sheila, you would know more about this, would be rights under the Family Healthcare Decision Act, mm -hmm. absent, you know, a healthcare, a healthcare proxy or, or something. Uh, so uh, other than that, I couldn't think, think of any practical reason for adult um, adoptions in this day. And, and well, and, and inheritance, if, if somebody dies intestate, obviously that would give a, a, a person or the, the right as a child to some level, some, some level of, uh, of inheritance and possibly to challenge a will that they might not otherwise be able to challenge. But uh, yeah, that's why I think these are all things the legislature would talk about <laughs> in revising. <yes. laughs> these are that, all practical concerns. I think everybody, including everybody on the court that made that decision and the majority, as well as the minority, everyone can agree the legislature should have and still should address it. Mm -hmm. I all right. I, I, I think on that note, we're at 2.55, uh, unless anybody has any other questions or, or comments, I'll, I'll turn it back to, to, to Leslie and I guess we can conclude. Well, thank you. Um, what a fascinating um, discussion and, uh, you know, just so many significant issues that I think our legal system uh, may not be prepared to address yet. Um, and we know how sometimes how slowly the, the system comes around. 
Um, but uh, I think a, a lot of really important ideas were shared here today. And I, I, I want to thank everyone for their part in this. And um, of course, all of our participants for, for, um, uh, for being uh, a part of the program. And uh, I hope you'll all tune in for the next one. Um, I think, and shall, shall correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if there are any unanswered questions in the chat room, we will put those out to the panelists to respond um, through okay. us in writing. So um, uh, don't uh, don't despair if your question didn't get answered. Um, but uh, thank you all very much. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, everybody. You guys were great. Bye. See you.